Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. This episode is from a sermon J.P. Conway preached on March 8, 2020. The sermon was on John 3, verses 1 through 17. Thanks for joining us. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, 
and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So, uh, I am not very good at the game of Scrabble. In fact, I don't think I've ever won a game. Beth and the kids have beat me in Scrabble. Ryan Thornton has definitely beat me in Scrabble. She's a good Scrabble player. Because of my weakness in the game of Scrabble, I'm always looking for new words in hopes that, oh, I'll learn this new word. It's not too long. Maybe it's a word I can get, and then I'll get that in Scrabble. So anyway, word of the day. I don't know if this is a new tradition. We'll begin at Ackland. But word of the day that we're going to talk about today is the word aseity. Okay? Aseity. It's a six-letter word. You can spell it this way. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. Word of the day. The word means existence originating from and having no source other than itself. Existence originating from and having no source other than itself. So what does that mean? Um, my, reach for it. my phone does not have a CD, okay? I have to plug it in every so often, and as old as it gets, it, it's a 5S. Is that one of the newer models that I'm behind? Anyway, um, it, I have to plug it in. Every half hour. But anyway, uh, it's an old phone. But it doesn't have a seat. It dies. My, now that I've done this, people are texting me. You're clever. I know who you are. Okay. Um, so, my car does not have a seat. Um, I have to fill it up with gas every week, two weeks, uh, because of that. It does not have self-existence. It needs an outside power. Humans do not have a seat. Okay? Um, the older I get, the more and more I'm reminded I do not have self-existence. I am such a dependent creature. I have to have water. I have to have food. I have to have sleep. And if I don't have these things, I, I become a shell of myself, right? If I don't have those things. I'm such a dependent creature. God, however, demonstrates a seity. God is a self-existent being that has um, intrinsic life. Is not dependent on anything other than God's self. God has a seity, and humans don't. And we learn this in the very beginning of, of the scriptures, in, in the garden. That God is life, is self-existent life. And humans have life only to the extent that they're in a relationship with this God that has life. And presumably, 
um, as, as long as Adam and Eve were in relationship with God, they would continue to live. But because of human sin, they're cast out of the garden. And to demonstrate the aseity of God, we have the visual of this tree of life, this almost mystical type of tree of life. That they eat from this tree and, and they can live forever, right? Uh, but God kicks them out of the garden and there's, there's cherubim guarding the tree of life that they cannot come back in. And follow that away and think of that in a moment. And as soon as they leave the tree of life, they realize very quickly that they don't have a seed. And the wheels start falling off immediately. You go from paradise to their own kids killing each other almost immediately. And eventually Adam and Eve die because they don't have a seed. They're dependent beings. The clearest example of this demonstration of who God is, the idea that God is a self-existent being, comes in the book of Exodus, the well-known burning bush scene, right? When Moses sees the bush burning, he begins this encounter with God. He's at the age of 80, and after attempting the liberation of his people on his own when he was 40, he has been a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years. At the age of 80, God speaks to him out of the bush. He's going to send him to Egypt, and he's like, okay, I just need a name. When I go, it's going to be embarrassing. They're like, who's the name of this God? And I don't know. Okay, this is my paraphrase. What is your name? And God says, I am who I am. Some translate that I will be what I will be. And it's the divine name Yahweh. And Yahweh is simply the Hebrew verb to be. Uh, it is self-existence. It is being itself. Uh, and it's a crucial verb to be. Uh, you can't, you won't be able to talk for very long in English without saying are or is or something like that, right? But God is self-existence. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Yahweh. You go tell the Egyptians, I am the God that originates in myself. I am the self-existent God that I came from nothing else. Humans, though, once again, do not have life in and of themselves. And many stories in the Old Testament remind us of that. Uh, Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus in this passage, he, he references one of the obscure ones. If you have your Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 21. This is the snake in the desert scene. Numbers chapter 21. And you keep the Bible handy. We're going to read from another scripture here in a second. Beyond what's in the bulletin. Numbers 21. This is during the wilderness wandering. Um... This is such a frustrating part of the Bible. Many people have wanted to read the Bible through it a year and just began to beat their head against the wall when they got to Numbers because the people are obstinate and stubborn and it's frustrating and they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And this is that part of the Bible. It's so frustrating. But uh, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They do this all the time. It's the same complaint. It never turns out, though, right? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. I have said the same thing in my life. Anyway, um, <laughs> then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you, you think? Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. 
Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Add that to the list of interesting, perhaps even odd stories in the Old Testament. But it's one of those stories that remind us humans don't have life in and of themselves. We're dependent beings and we die. But you have these hints throughout the Old Testament narrative that uh, life is in God. And if you look to God for life, God is the sustenance of life. And life can be found in God. It's reminiscent of the words in Genesis, which Clark mentioned at the table last week. From dust we came, and to dust we will return. Whereas the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 verse 8, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so there's hints all throughout the Old Testament narrative that God has a seed, but humans don't. But we have life to the extent that we have a relationship with God. And this brings us to the time of Christ. This brings us to the time in which Nicodemus lived and walked and kind of what was going on with him. So... By the time of Christ, there's kind of two main perspectives on wrestling with what it means to have life. And how can humans have life? Two main Jewish perspectives. There were more, but there were two main Jewish perspectives. And they were found in the two main religious parties of the day. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Nicodemus is going to be a Pharisee, but uh, he's a little discontent with, with being a Pharisee. We'll leave it at that for now. So here's the Sadducees' take on what it means to have life. Going back to this idea that only God has a seity. We don't have life in and of ourselves. So what does it mean to have a meaningful life? What does it mean to have a good life? So the Sadducees say, we don't believe in the resurrection. Because it doesn't make sense to the human mind. And we see no proof of it. So if there's no resurrection, then this life is all that there is. And if this life is all that there is, we need to make the best of it while we can. And if you're under Roman occupation in the first century, the best way to make the best of the life you've been given is to suddenly be, you know what, I think I'm pro-Roman. You know, I think that's a good idea. They're the biggest gang in town. They're the biggest show in town. And so the Sadducees were pro-Roman, and they cozied up to the elite of their day. And they went through the religious rituals because that was their national identity, and yet they were very secular. And they were cozy with the establishment. They were cozy with Herod. Everyone in the Herodian dynasty kind of leaned Sadducee. And um, it's very much an establishment, wealthy type of thing. They cozied up with the Romans and they made the best of their life that they could. That's the Sadducees. The Pharisees are trying to wrestle with what does it mean to truly have life? And they believe in resurrection. And this goes back to how they interpret passages in Daniel and in various things. They believe in resurrection because they're like, if God came to give us life, life under Rome is not really life. There's got to be a life beyond us. They see themselves in the lineage of the prophets, and the prophets would always say, the reason you are occupied is because you are not living the moral life you've been called to live. And if you do not, specifically the prophets would talk about their idolatry, the way they treated widows and orphans, various things. You are a wicked people, therefore you are occupied. So the Pharisees naturally thought, if we stop being wicked, maybe Rome won't be over us anymore. And so they went around preaching moral revival. 
And when it didn't go quickly, they naturally thought, well, I'm living a moral life, and yet Rome is still in charge. Justin, you, Justin's living a moral life. It must be one of you that's not living a moral life. That's why Rome's not in charge. So the Pharisees became the great finger pointers of their age. And they begin to have these very legalistic interpretations of Torah because they had to have some reason why God had not liberated them from Rome. Okay? And what they consoled themselves was is that at the very least there would be resurrection. So Jesus comes into this atmosphere. So you've got two parties. So let's say you have one party that secular doesn't believe in the resurrection, is cozy with the elite. You have another religious party that is more, um, more, they say they're for the common people, yet because of their overzealousness for the moral life, they end up being hypocritical and judgmental, but they do believe in the resurrection. And Jesus comes and says, you know what, I don't really like either one of my choices here. I'm aware of, of a third option. He agrees with the Sadducees that life on this earth doesn't act matter. Our lives here, the quality of our lives here, it very much matters. But he doesn't like how cozy they are with the elite that only cares about themselves. And he definitely believes in the resurrection and disagrees with them there. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, boy, I love your emphasis on moral revival. But can we do without the vast hypocrisy and the judgmental attitude, right? He does agree with them on how they interpret the resurrection. So Nicodemus comes to him as an example of this. And he goes to Jesus as a Pharisee, but kind of a disillusioned Pharisee. And he goes to Jesus asking about this, and Jesus says, You must be born again. And then he starts talking very interesting things about the Spirit. And what he's telling Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, your life here, it matters. And you can live the life you've always wanted to live. You can live the life you were created to live. You can live a life of joy and peace, and you can live a life in right relationship where you're not always angsty and greed-ridden the various things. You can live that life. But you're going to have to relearn everything. That's what it means to be born again. You're going to have to relearn everything. But I'm going to give you this fresh wind, this fresh fire, this Holy Spirit that's going to teach you how to live. Because your life on this, on this earth right now, it truly does matter. And human flourishing matters. And in that way, he agrees with what the Sadducees have been saying. But then he takes it further and he says, even beyond this life, your life eternally matters. Your life forever matters. And, and this is the quote that I read here, in, uh, or that you read with me at the end of the passage. I'll read it again, 14 through 17. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, that's the weird number 21 story. Right? So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How does that work? How is Jesus the snake in the desert? He's basically saying, just like we put a snake on a pole, we're going to put Jesus up. And we see this, obviously, this side of the cross is a foreshadowing of the cross, that Jesus will be put on this object of wood up on a hill, and it will be just like the snake on the pole, and Jesus will be lifted up on the cross. And if we look to Jesus, 
There's life. There's, there's healing from the snake bite, so to speak. But how does that work? How does that function? It goes back to a seed. Jesus reveals himself to be God. Jesus has self-existence. Jesus has self-dependence. Jesus is God, and God cannot be killed. You can't kill God. The tomb could not hold him, as we often say. And so because Jesus has a seity, Jesus cannot die. And then the beauty of the passage is that if we look to Jesus, Jesus shares his aseity with us. Jesus shares his life with us. You can have life now and forever. We do not have life on our own. This week has just been one more reminder of that. But it's something we know deep down. And 30 seconds of Twitter always reminds us again. We do not have life. It is constantly outside the reach of our hearts. But in Jesus, we can have this life. And it's fitting that when Jesus is lifted up, the very moment he's lifted up, we read in the gospel that the temple curtain was torn. And this was the temple curtain that would guard the way to the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and all those things. And we know from Scripture that embroidered, woven into the temple curtain, were cherubim that would guard the way to the most holy place. And when Jesus is lifted up like the snake in the desert, the cherubim are removed. And the path to the most holy place the path to the tree of life has been cleared. And so I'd like to end with this beautiful passage in Revelation, from Revelation 22 through the first part of 6. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb beyond the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, that is not mentioned at all from Genesis 3 all the way until Revelation 22. Down the middle of the great street of the city. Each side stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the Lamb or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Family, we do not have life in ourselves. We are incredibly dependent beings. And someday we'll die. We do not have life in ourselves. But if we trust in Jesus, and if we look to Jesus, and I know this is a cliche, but this is a cliche that's actually true. If we look to Jesus, we have life. And the opposite of life is death. That's what is said in John 3.16. Will not perish, cease to exist. 
but we have life in Christ. The blessedness of the gospel of our Lord Jesus is that Jesus shares his aseity with us. And in Christ, we can have life now and forever because of the gift of the grace. Let us stand together and sing. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash Thanks again for joining us. God bless.